you're listening to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, all other podcast platforms you got, and support Kareem on Patreon. There's textures of reality that are beyond the fabric of what is directly seen and experienced. And the biggest example of this is the late Stephen Hawkins. Consciousness is an immediate awareness at the same time of the past, the present, and the future. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I have Dr. Muhammad Ghilan with me today. Very excited to have him on the show. We're going to be talking about your one of your favorite subjects too, right, Dr. Muhammad's consciousness? I have a love-hate relationship with it, if you can be more accurate in the description. Any any serious philosopher or thinker, I think, would, yeah. right? Well, it's my love-hate relationship with it is not because of the problem itself, but because of the discussions and the paradigms that are it's happening within. That's really my problem with this, with the with the topic. Well, I would love to maybe first take a take a stab here at defining consciousness, and maybe you can refine it or correct it, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about you know, where we're at in the field of um, consciousness studies today. I mean, we've had a lot of breakthroughs in neuroscience. Um, I think some of the quote-unquote hard problems of 50 or 30 years ago may not be as hard today. Um, And we can maybe talk a little bit more about what all this means today and uh, where where do you think we're going to be headed. And I think this also ties into things like artificial intelligence and singularity and all that fun stuff. But so my understanding of consciousness is it's not it's not um, necessarily like my self-consciousness, right? Like, oh, you're a self-conscious person, which can be used as maybe I'm just, a, you know, aware of something right now, like my the sound of my voice or you sitting here in front of me. Uh, it's not self-consciousness in the sense of self-esteem, like I feel, you know, inadequate about something. I'm very self-conscious about going to the party. But my understanding of consciousness is really about this subjective, qualitative perspective that any person has. And um, I've heard it also defined by other scholars in the field as it's essentially what it's like to be a, a system, an organized system with integrated information. So for example, if you and I you know, our consciousness got transferred into a leopard or a bat or a dolphin, um, it's not like we would all of a sudden, uh, the lights wouldn't go out and all of a sudden you're just not there, but you would have this full immersion and qualitative perspective of being as a dolphin or as a bat. So you'll actually feel exactly what that's like and understand what that's like. And that would be how a dolphin or a bat is is conscious, so to speak. So let me just start with that and uh, hear what you have to say. About- um, that's... Um- I just had a flood of things just occur to my mind as you said these things uh, with regards to subjective, qualitative. All of these terminologies are actually excluding the discussion from the scientific realm, which is a quantitative, empirical, objective. That's why you're here. <laughs> so um, the, the, in the field of uh, the study of consciousness, there's really no agreed upon definition of what consciousness is right. what you present is is one kind of take on it it's 
I guess it'd be one of the dominant ones that they define it as such. Uh, the most famous example of that is Thomas Nigel, What It's Like to Be a Bat, um, that essay that he wrote about it. And it's uh, in the sense that you can't actually experience or think about or conceptualize what it's like to be a bat until you are a bat. There is a debate about, is it really a qualitative experience? Is it um, a quantitative experience masquerading as a qualitative experience? Um, is it even there as opposed to just an illusion? Right. Uh, and one of the examples they give you is like a sunset. It looks like the sun is setting, but that's an illusion. The sun is not setting. It's just that the earth is rotating around its axis and is giving you the appearance of the sun setting. Um, but it doesn't actually exist as such. And so consciousness is maybe something like that. Um, is consciousness the, an emergent property where the uh, constellation of neuronal activity in the brain coming together results in an emergent property that we call consciousness, which is the subjective awareness? Um, uh, is it identical with neuronal activity? So that's another example. That's another take on it. Is it just... Uh, it's like a property theory where neural activity results in a quantitative measurable thing that we can investigate. And at the same time, it results in a conscious experience that maybe it's not privy to our measurement tools yet. And that's really the key uh, thing here. Yet technology hasn't advanced to the level where we can do it. It's essentially if I picture, if I build like, let's say 10,000 little CPU units and they're wired in a certain fashion and we get all that um, neural computational system down, that could, that's one way of understanding if we reduce consciousness to uh, the neurological computational process, we could technically understand that in the human first and then replicate it with that hardware. And if we turn that on and it works the way it does, um, that could make the lights go on for this intelligence so to speak right so that's what you mean by isn't that the direction that we're kind of going in in modernity with understanding consciousness we want to find the neural computational system uh as a that that mirrors that that's the direction but you got to remember that um that's not necessarily the right direction it's just the the overarching paradigm under which we operate is the scientific paradigm that assumes philosophical naturalism and when you take that paradigm for yourself, what that does is it basically limits um, and determines the types of questions that you can ask. So if, if I say that all that exists are material entities that can't be measured at some point in time, all that, is, all that we are limited by is really technology. We just need to advance uh, technologically enough for us to reveal uh, dimensions of nature. Uh, the latest example was the Higgs boson. You need something so powerful, computational systems that are so massive that finally you can get that blip on the graph that tells you this is a sign that now we have an indication. We haven't measured, we haven't actually observed the Higgs boson itself, but we now measure the effect of the Higgs boson in this, in this way, in this gravitational field. And so that tells us that it exists. So you, that's really the paradigm that we're operating within. How can you, the question I ask is how can you uh, start to def uh, to investigate something that you haven't even defined properly yet. There, there's no agreement on, I mean, you go to any scientist or any philosopher that works with this um, problem of consciousness, the first thing that they will tell you is how they define it. And then they go about the answers that they provide you. 
And it's basically just becomes a matter of who has the largest following, who has the best rhetoric, who can articulate their case the best based on their subjective definition of what they say consciousness is. And then everybody buys into that. But the al-bidayat alamatun nihayat, as Ibn Atahil says, like the beginnings are signs of the end. It really depends on how you define this issue to start before we can jump to conclusions and talk about what it is. So a lot like Daniel Dennett, for example, his uh, uh, approach to consciousness is really a, an attentional theory. It's, he'll, show you gra- he'll show you images that are identical, separated by a span of time, milliseconds usually, and then he'll ask you what did you uh, catch and what, did you, what didn't you catch, and then he'll show you the differences between the two images, and that's to him how he, in, how he explores the problem of consciousness. Based on this definition, it really relies upon sensory experience. And so if you have a deficiency in your sensory experience, then you have deficiency in your consciousness. And we know that that's not the case. Like when you're sleeping? Is a blind person, you know, is a deaf person less conscious than I am because they can't have access to certain sounds? Consciousness is something greater than that. It's not, it's, it's, I, I really like the way that Abu Nasr al-Farabi uh, explores it. Um, Al-Farabi, I like Al-Farabi's treatment because Al-Farabi was very obviously committed to the, committed to the Quranic worldview. And so when he talks about uh, uh, consciousness, but let's just step back a little bit before we get into Al-Farabi. Sure. When we talk about consciousness, I recommend people pick up George Macari's Soul Machine, this thick, dense book where he talks about the historical development of the concept of the mind which is very intimately connected to the concept of consciousness. It was an Enlightenment project, one of the many projects during the Enlightenment period, in which the soul, which is the ruh, as we say in Arabic, this immaterial thing that is animating our existence, material existence, has been negated and exchanged for a physicalist description of what it means to be human and to explain the existential questions of the human condition. And so you have uh, Rousseau and Locke and others, uh, Descartes, coming up with all of these different solutions, trying to explain what it means to be, what is this thing called being human, especially now that we're moving towards a model where you as a human being are really not that different, if not just, just a different type of an animal. And we say, the articulate animal. Okay, what makes you different qualitatively? Because there's a qualitative difference. If we look at a quantitative level between humans and other animals, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, the power of an evolutionary explanation for the, for the development of humans on Earth comes about from the quantitative investigations and conclusions and theoretical uh, paradigms that are constructed to explain why we're here the way that we are, physically speaking, from a quantitative perspective. But we know that when you look at humans, there's a qualitative difference that distinguishes us completely differently from the rest of the animal world. Um, one of the things that Farabi mentions, back to Farabi with regards to, because he talks about a nafs. Really, when we talk about consciousness, I always tell people, let's go back to the Islamic kind of paradigm. When we ask these questions, were these questions asked by our scholars before? They were not, and they were. They were not in the way that they're being asked today. Because Muslim scholars were operating in the paradigm of, الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ There is ghayb, 
Allah has the command. Allah has the, the creation and the command. There is this, Al-Farabi says that the human being is actually a, a combination between Amr and Khalq. They ask you about the soul, tell them that the soul is from the command of my Lord and you have not been given of knowledge except very little. And so there is the creation of the human being. So there is the khalq of the human being that he was created from mud and, and then made the, the progeny of it come about and all of these things. But then there is the ruh of the human being, which is the command. So Farabi says the human being is actually a, a mazij, is what he says, a mixture of al-khalq and al-amr. And so when we talk about it from a, an Islamic perspective, we're talking about several things. We're talking about aql. We're talking about nafs. We're talking about ruh. And he says something that distinguishes qualitatively human beings from animals, which is an interesting point that you brought up with uh, Nigel, uh, Thomas Nigel and uh, what it's like to be a bat. Yeah. That bats and animals don't even have that, which is an interesting thing. So from a modern material paradigm, they speak about what it's like to be a monkey or what it's like to be a bat or what it's like to be a dolphin, as if there is a, a subjective experience of the dolphin or the bat or these things to, in the human kind of sense, it's just a different type of experience. And Farabi tells you, actually, they don't. They don't even have that. Because if they did, then they would be mukallaf. They would be illegally obligated. And they're not. They would be like responsible for their actions. They'll be responsible. They have feelings, they have emotions, they have uh, nafs to the degree that allows them to experience these things only so much so that it, it allows them to facilitate their day-to-day -day living. Right. They are, they are aware of themselves to an extent. I mean, that's how they survive. That's the awareness. That's where it stops. They're right. aware of themselves in the world so that they can survive in the world, so that they can raise their progeny. They're aware enough to know that this uh, calf is mine. I gave birth to this calf, right? I gave birth to this puppy. So they have this type of awareness, that they have this connection, but it doesn't rise to the level of being able to ask what it's like to be a bat, right? Right. Or being aware, uh, or asking a question like, what will it be like when I die? Or it, when will I die? Or yeah. all of these kind of higher functioning, you know, capacities. It's very unique to the human being, clearly, because we're sitting here using these screens and microphones and there's civilization surrounding us and all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, the fact that yeah, cause we're talking about dolphins, I don't think whales are in the ocean wondering what it's like to be those um, bald mammals on, on, on the surface of the earth right now. Right? So, so we have to keep in mind all of these things that the discussion that the Muslims have had about this stuff was not at that was not to the lower level that we have today. There's another thing that he also, uh, Al-Farabi mentions, which is really interesting, um, which goes in an opposite direction to the way that we talk about consciousness today. The way we talk about consciousness in a, in a physical naturalism type of paradigm is um, it's a passive thing. You as a human being are a product of nature. And your existence is really just due to events that happen to you. So you're a passive recipient of daily events that take place. 
And these events formulate your consciousness. So now we have to ask the question of what is this consciousness and your awareness of these things. It's a passive process. You're a, rec you're a receiver. But Al-Farabi says, but Allah says, Min amri rabbi. This is a command. There is an active component to consciousness that drives it. Even when we talk about the intellect in Arabic, al-aql, ma'aqilu, there's an active component to intellect. In other words, it's actually driving your behavior. It's not a, a, a passive recipient of things happening and then a rationalization of whatever you end up getting yourself into. This is an active thing that actually animates your existence, that makes you go about in the world and do things, that gives you agency. So this is another verse that he uses. Allah says, So Allah says that we have offered the trust to the, to the heavens and the mountains and the, and the earth. They, they refused it. But the human being carried it. So there's all of this active agency. What is, the, what is this? Um, uh, the, is this agency that was offered? Agency. It's the ability, the scholars of Tafsir say that this refers to the ability to obey and disobey commands. So let me let me stop you there for a second. So this verse, I love this verse that you brought up. And it's very profound because it's basically God asking different creations if they want this power that humans have. And then the humans took it on, so to speak. Yeah. Right? That's what the verse says. Now, I've heard people ask me this and I'm going to ask you. I never remember saying I'll take it on, <laughs> right? I didn't. I don't remember, you know, saying, "Oh, I'd love self-con," you know, "I'd love consciousness and volition and will and accountability." I, I'll, I'll sign up for that, right? Now, from a maybe, you know, in the backstory here, right? Allah created us. We existed before we were, you know, brought into this world. Yeah. Um, our spirits existed, right? As the Quran tells us. Now, is this? I mean, my understanding is no. If I'm here and you're here. It means we accepted that invitation. That's why we're here. Yeah. We may not remember it like as clear as what I had for breakfast this morning, yeah. but it's like the other aspects of ourselves, like that longing or returning home, like fitra, knowing there's a law, knowing there's an unseen, like all of these things are blueprinted in us. Yeah. Would you say this acceptance of this invitation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was is, is part of that as well? I would say that um like the point that you said that we don't remember it clearly. The Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes it as dhikr. And all of what we're doing here is just trying to remember. When you engage in vocations and, and afkar and stuff, all of these things are just reminders of yourself, of the original trust, of the original covenant that we took. Am I not your Lord? They all said, yes, we testify. So... All we're doing here is remembering these things. The fact that we chose it and we don't remember it doesn't disprove or doesn't create a problem. Right. It's just that you don't remember it. That's all. Um, and the blueprint is basically to drive you towards like Allah has given us all of these things internally through our fitrah and externally through messengers to remind us of there's a the story. Come back and respond to this call. So. That's really the point. So this is an active agent thing. The consciousness is not, it's animating your body. It's getting you up in the morning. It's moving you about and around. Consciousness is actually also the reason why um, uh, Adam salam, Hawa salam, ate from the tree. Right. That's what, that's what Iblis used against them to have them eat from the tree. 
they were conscious and aware and they used their agency. They were the thing about consciousness that Al-Farabi mentions, which actually um, uh, he defines it clearly. And that's why the definition from an Islamic perspective uh, will not lend itself to scientific investigation. And forget about an Islamic perspective. If you actually understand what consciousness is, you will recognize rationally that this is not something you can study scientifically. Al-Farabi points to a couple of things about consciousness. He says that consciousness is an immediate awareness at the same time of the past, the present, and the future. All of them at the same time. And he says, This thing is actually in the realm of the malakut. It's not in the mulk. Mulk is all of these things that we touch and feel and stuff. Malakut is in the ghaib. It's the greater uh, element of existence. And so that part is outside of space and time. And your consciousness is outside of space and time in that sense, that it's aware of its past, you're aware of where you came from, and at the same time you're aware of where you're at right now, and you're also aware of your goals and aspirations, and you conduct your actions and your behavior based on these things, these three things at the same time. What did I do in the past? Where am I right now? And what am I trying to achieve? Animals don't have that. Um, the right. second thing is, uh, he says that, it's awareness of itself, that you're conscious of being conscious. It's just a meta-awareness. Um, and he said if, if it was uh, just another physical part of you, just an empirical aspect of you, then it would, not be, it would be serving something else. So uh, uh, the heart is serving the rest of the body in some way. The heart is not aware of itself. It's just a component of your body that is serving the rest of your body. With the kidneys, the liver, all of your limbs, they're serving something else. They don't have a meta-awareness of their own existence on their own accord, except for consciousness. And so he says that is another proof that consciousness is not a physical thing. It has a meta-awareness of itself, which means that it serves itself. It doesn't serve anything underneath it. Um, and the other thing he says that also is related to its existence outside of uh, space and time is all of your body disintegrates. All of your body goes through developments where it gets better and then it gets worse throughout your lifetime. Except for consciousness. You see somebody who's 70 years old, they're still the same person. If, if your consciousness was linked to your physical uh, uh, body and your physiological function, then you should see uh, a, a tangible difference in a person's consciousness. We're not talking about mental capacity here. Because well, I was going to ask you, what about Alzheimer's or you know, amnesia? Alzheimer's is an interesting case, actually, because in the early stages of Alzheimer's, a person knows that they're losing their mental capacities. They have an awareness, which is an interesting, like it's a meta-awareness. I'm aware of my memory. But I'm losing my awareness. Okay, what is the power? Where is this coming from? That you're aware of the decline of your mental capacities. Right. Before they completely go and then you lose all of them, there is this kind of intermediate period where you can see that happening and you're observing it take place. It's almost like a... I like the way that uh, Rupert Sheldrake uh, 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 compares it. He says, why do you have to say that it's an emergent property? Why don't you look at the brain almost like a receiver right. and a radio? So if a radio is broken in some way, there's some mal malfunction to it, you might still get the signal, but the signal is, it's like poor connection. It's not clean. Right. Uh, you have a little bit of static happening in the radio and stuff. Or it's choppy. It's choppy. That, but does that mean that the signal coming is deficient or is it the tool that you have in front of you 
has a problem. Right. And that actually goes touches not just on Alzheimer's. That touches on uh, people that have I had a sister ask me about uh, she has a son with uh, a disability. Um, and I said, you know, you have to recognize that the ruh is not disabled. From an Islamic perspective, your son knows what's happening. Interesting. He recognizes. It's just the tools that he's been given in this world, they're malfunctioning. The brain, the body, all this is an instrument. It's an instrument. And they're not functioning properly, but this person is there. And the biggest example of this is the late Stephen Hawkins. This guy had everything go away. And Allah, you know, I look at these things as Allah just giving us proofs against ourselves. Like, look at this person. Everything is dysfunctional. Nothing is working. He's literally using one muscle in his cheek to communicate with you just to show you that he's still there. There's something there. So the difference between him and somebody else that maybe has, having an intellectual disability, their mental processes are not going through as the, way, as the way that they should. That doesn't mean their consciousness is not there. And that's why, you know, the, the arguments against euthanasia, against uh, abortion, because a kid has a, some sort of a disability or whatever the case may be. If you don't have a religious paradigm, you don't believe in the ruh, you don't believe in, the, in what consciousness is, because consciousness is a, a switched in term for the ruh. That's really what they're talking about. Mm. It's just, it's a materialized term to uh, that where the ruh has been eliminated and they're just now saying consciousness. What is consciousness? It's actually the same questions that the Jews asked the Prophet when they asked him what the ruh. If you bring them today, they would just say, what is consciousness? And we would just come back at them in, in modern language and say, Qul consciousness is min amri rabbi. <laughs> is really what you would say. Because the ruh is what's aware. Right. This this bring this reminds me of um, when I was an undergrad. I read uh, a lot about Helen Keller. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. And she she had so she is brilliant because for those of us that don't know, she was blind, um, deaf, and she couldn't speak. Um, and then she became an author. That's something. Subhanallah. So it's it, it's fascinating because when you read her accounts of herself. I mean, I still remember it vividly. She said the first word she ever learned was water. And she said that the moment it, the lights went on for her was when she associated, because she, you know, was using Braille, I believe at the time, right? Her, her step-parent or whoever her guardian was. And so she was like, I, it was the first time that I realized this wonderful, cool, flowing something was W-A-T-E-R. Yeah. And she just described that light going on. And she said before language and starting to associate meaningful impressions in her psyche with words, she said, I, I knew I was there. But she described it as an unconscious consciousness in this dark nothingness. Right. So she was there. She knew she was there, but it was almost like she was imprisoned. Yes. Right. Yes. And slowly as all of these words started to take root in experiences and senses, it's as if these stars started to light up in this infinite dark galaxy. And eventually she, you know, the lights went on, even though she was still blind and deaf. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. So this, so this brings me though to another question, which is also kind of debated around this subject of consciousness: is does does consciousness precede language, right? And do you need language to be conscious? I mean, maybe I just answered my own question with this Helen Keller story, but we would have never known that unless you know she told us about it herself, for instance. So how much do you think language is in, inextricably tied to our consciousness, or is it again just another tool or instrument? 
to give form and shape and rise to what's already happening. I keep referring back to Iqbal whenever this issue of language and consciousness as in the ruh comes up. Uh, because in the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam, he has a section where he talks a little bit about spirituality. And and he um, he says that a true spiritual experience does not lend itself into language because a spiritual experience is outside of space and time. Um, you're talking about experiencing the divine. Yeah, it's beyond cognition. It's beyond cognition. And when you talk about language, you're talking about a progression through space and time of certain uh, cadence, certain uh, uh, elements coming together in your brain so that you can produce these things and, and express them. And they're limited by space and time. Language is something that occurs within space and time. And so it's just another instrument. And if somebody does not have that instrument, for example, it's, um, they have their own languages, but you can go to like uh, the Amazon tribes, you know, pe like people that have not had connection whatsoever with any other civilization. When you have these researchers, anthropologists and whatnot, they go to these uh, jungles in the Amazon and they find people who have just never had any human contact. They have language amongst each other. They can understand each other and stuff. But between the us and them, for all intents and purposes, practically speaking, there's no language. Do you say that these people have no consciousness? Do you say that, you know, they have ways of expression, but it's just not intelligible to us. Or are babies not conscious until they learn how to speak? Right. That's obviously not true. Why is the sunnah? I mean, again, back to I always go back. This religion is actually amazing because and we are the ones who just don't really get into it enough. Why is it the sunnah that when a newborn is coming into the world, the first thing that you do is you do the adhan in the right ear. You do the iqama in the left ear, mm -hmm. and then you do the tahnik, which is uh, chewing the Tum date. Yeah, tamar of the date, and then you put that in their gums yeah. so that they can taste the sweetness. What are you doing there? And the lesson the scholars tell us is that you're reminding them of the covenant. SubhanAllah. You're, you're reminding them of responding to the covenant, and then if they respond with the tahnik, they taste sweetness, that's the reward of responding to the covenant. SubhanAllah. This is somebody that just literally came out of the womb right now. No language for, you know, we might think that they're a blank slate, but they're not really because everything is in there. They just need to be reminded as they grow into their own in this world. And you're just giving them the first thing as this reminder. Right. It's the ignition. Like you were saying earlier, if, if this is the ruh, consciousness is an um, but it's an active principle, right? It's almost like the existential engine that's always revving. And when the child comes, you're just turning it on for them and it stays... And now it's you know on in, in a in a more fuller way, right? Once they once they come out and it keeps going. Well, you're transitioning from one round to the other, right? Yeah. You are in the in this alam barzakh, that you know alam ruh. You come into this and then you go into the barzakh before you go into the final abode. So you're going through these transitional states, and coming into the dunya is a you're now going into this state here. You're coming into this world, and so you need this reminder. You're on already. You just need to be directed. Right. And reminded of the thing that you already um, uh, knew ahead of time, so that's that's really it, man. It's um, we need. I think the way that we talk about it has to change, at least from an Islamic perspective, uh, because um, we have to deconstruct the the, the assumptions. Uh, what do they mean when they talk about consciousness in the West mm -hmm. and these Western researchers and philosophers? And what what is the overarching paradigm that they're talking within? And 
once we do that, we start to recognize, wait a minute, there's a problem with this whole discourse that for us as Muslims and from the Quran and the Sunnah, this doesn't fly. It's not us refusing to be intellectual and engage or anything. It's just you're asking the question in a very sneaky way where you're not exposing the fact that you're uh, operating within a paradigm of kufr, first of all. I need to first deconstruct that. From there, then we can go into the terminology. You're using consciousness in the West now, and not West, but like in a modern discourse, uh, scientific sense. Consciousness is just a switched in word for ruh. That's really what you're asking about. You're not asking about uh, awareness, mental processes, any of that stuff. You're asking about the ruh. But you don't think mind is the pretty much the same thing as well, based on soul machine? I mean, soul also got replaced by mind. That's, that's it. That mind and consciousness are really very similar kind of synonyms. Um, and they're used to replace the soul. When they did away with the church and they said, we don't need God anymore, and they just wanted to follow, uh, 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 you know, methodolog methodological naturalism as their approach to studying the world. That 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 way of looking at the world is very deficient. It, it has a lot of holes in it, and they don't know how to fill it, and they will continue to not know how to fill it. What what also came up for me too, Doctor Muhammad, is, uh, and Ghazali mentions this, is that one of the proofs of the ruh is dream states, right? Now. Yeah. Simply put, all of us have had dreams, inshallah, not everybody does actually, but I mean, not everybody remembers their dreams or, or has such vivid experiences, but I know I have had dreams where it's extremely vivid, yeah. sensory experiences, there's depth, there's, there's, you can feel velocity, you can feel motion, you feel emo all kinds of emotions, sadness, joy, you know, and other types of, of experiences, right? And yet your body is not getting any of that sensory input while you're sleeping. Now, some people will say, oh, that's, you know, just your brain randomly firing stuff. And because the human mind is wired to make meaning and put order and structure to everything, that's basically what dreams are. Yeah. But then I asked, I asked the follow-up question. I was having this discussion with somebody in Stanford a few years ago. And I said, okay, well, how do you, how, what about true dreams? And they said, what do you mean by that? I'm like, dreams that you have, and they're very vivid and clear, and they actually happen. So what do you say to that? Because that has nothing to do with this cognitive, you know, neural random firing explanation, right? And they didn't, they didn't really know what I was talking about. But in Islam, we know that this is a real thing. And it's a real thing that is not restricted to Muslims. You can ask. No, anybody. it's not. And many people have these very vivid dreams where, and actually in the tradition, it's... Um, these are ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses to show people um, that there is something beyond the sensory thing that you're experiencing in the world. Um, and they're almost like calls, like, you know, come to your Lord. And this is kind of a proof. And that's why the Prophet said that it's a part of 40 parts of Nubuwa, of prophethood, that you get these true dreams. And we have a whole science discipline in the Islamic tradition. Muhammad ibn Sirin is the most famous figure for it. How to distinguish true dreams from false dreams, how to distinguish inspirations from Allah versus whisperings of shaitan. And your nafs. There's a specific time of the night when you get a particular dream and that has significance versus another time. So we have all of these things and there are experiences that are shared. SubhanAllah, it's from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that um, this religion, because it's, a, it's meant to be a call to everybody. This is not just a, pro, a provincial 
We're not like the Jews, for example. It's just like one nation, you know, one people, the children of Israel, and that's it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Messenger of Alameen. It's for everybody. And so it's universal. It's universal. So he gave access to all different kinds of people to different experiences that allows them to start to maybe consider that this is not all there is to the world. No matter how often you get told this and how much you see the, the atheist types get up on stages and record videos and try to affirm that, when people sit back and just reflect, even people like Sam Harris, by the way, he has actually genuine spiritual experiences from some of the things that I've heard. Right. But he's so committed to his, in such a blind way, talking about blind faith, he's so committed to his ideology that he's not willing to let go of it and consider that you're getting all of these doors opening for you and you're refusing to go through them. Right. Which is sad. It's, it's, it's a sad thing to be, a sad state to be in. So would you say that dreams and per perhaps true dreams um, are a strong evidence of the ruh? Yeah, because the ruh is already, when you go to sleep, the ruh goes into the malakut. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the ones that don't die, they, he returns the ruh back to your body. But when you're asleep, the ruh departs and it goes into the realm of the malakut and it's outside of space and time at that moment. At least space and time as we experience it. Um, and so they're proof that there's something more. All of these things are proofs that you need to, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of sad. We've, we've lost our curiosity. You know, the, the modern age talks about how curious we are, and that's why we've made all these scientific discoveries and such. This is the most depraved um, station that we've gotten to. We're curious about all the things that don't matter. And we're not curious about the things that actually matter. So when you get these dreams and these experiences that you have, when you see, forget about dreams. Sometimes you'll be just standing awake, completely awake, and you'll see an event happen before it happens. And then it takes place in front of you. And people attribute that, oh, it's deja vu. Right. But deja vu is still a very, very mysterious, enchanting thing. Or Carl Jung termed synchronicity, which is when you have an external event have direct connection to an internal uh, significant moment or thought or idea. So, for instance, if I'm contemplating and doing this podcast with you and I'm just thinking about butterflies and there happens to be a butterfly banging on my window right now, that's a synchronicity. Right. It's it's the, the possibility of that is, is very, very, very slim. Right. There's a good example that just happened to me yesterday. I got an email from a sister, um, uh, uh, a friend of mine, and she um, she said she was staying with her friend. They were traveling on a train or something and they were talking about emotional uh, intelligence and talking about emotional well-being and the need for counselors in the Muslim community needing to take care of our emotional needs, just like we take care of our financial and all other types of needs. And then she says, then I open up Facebook and I see you just posted something about emotional well-being. Because I posted a thing, I was like, you're not a machine. You have emotional needs as well. And so that's what prompted her to send the email because it was something to an outside observer. It's like, oh, it's, uh, what a coincidence. You know what? The world is filled with a lot of what a coincidence. At what point do you say, maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe there's actually a hikmah, a plan behind all of these things and nothing happens out of order. Nothing is random. Um and so all of this is just indications of our actual connectivity beyond. I mean, what prompted her to open a Facebook at that moment? And at that moment to see me posting something like that, when she had at that moment that type of conversation, 
you hear you hear stuff like this all the time. Like I was just thinking about my buddy Muhammad, and I haven't talked to him in two years. And wallahi, he calls me that minute, right? Stuff like this. You know, we have all these expressions and saying, yeah, it happens all the time. It happens people. all the time. So there, there seems to be a lot of experiences that anybody, regardless of their background or theology, can vouch for and be like, yeah, there's some there's some mysterious stuff that happens that isn't really, you can't really explain it by statistical probability anymore or coincidences, right? It seems like there's something else, you know, I don't want to use the word magical, you know, but let's say enchanting, right? Or um, wondrous yeah. that's happening. There's textures of reality that are beyond the fabric of what is directly seen and experienced. This is, again, back to the original topic that we started all of this with, with consciousness. It's the same thing. I think we're so enchanted with technology and scientific advancements and how amazing it is that we could be on opposite sides of the planet and communicate in real time um, through technolo technological means and communication uh, tools. It's All of these things have really blinded us from the bigger picture. And so we assume because science is so powerful and it impacts our lives in so many different ways, we assume that it should answer everything and it should deal with everything. And it just simply doesn't. Um, that's like somebody um, who looks at the world because your eyes can see so much and then assumes that if, let's say that you're deaf, that sound doesn't exist. Just because you don't have the tool to hear sounds, that doesn't mean the sound doesn't exist. Kind of a similar idea here. Science is a tool. It's a tool of, it's a, it's a knowledge tool. Mm -hmm that we use to find out certain things about the world, to investigate it, to find out patterns, to make use of it so that it benefits us and facilitates our lives. But it's not the be all or end all. It's just a tool. It's one of the tools. But unfortunately, you know, um, I was putting together some stuff uh, uh, in my place here and I needed a toolbox and all I had was a hammer. Well, all of a sudden when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I went and got a toolbox because like, I, need, I need screwdrivers, I need other things to help me put together the furniture that I have. So, okay, so I gotta go get a toolbox. I think people now need to go get a toolbox. We, we just have a hammer. Right. And we've been told it's, it's this lie that's perpetuated. And it's not fair to people. You know, you have all these experiences in your life. You have this rich experience of the world. And then you're told that it's all an illusion. And the only way for you to, and, and if we can't investigate it with science, it's an illusion. And the only tool you have is scientific methodology. Which is also limited by the illusion. Which is limited by the illusion that you have. I, I don't know. I think it's unfair to people to tell them that. And it's also uh, taking the human intellect. The power of the human intellect has been reduced to its lowest common denominator. Because if you think about the levels of intellectual aptitudes, the highest level is the abstract level. level. It's the ability to engage in abstract thinking where you don't have access to um, the sensory experience per se, but you go beyond it to the meanings and the forms, the realm of the forms. That's pure reason now we're talking about. The idea of recognizing the necessary versus the possible versus the impossible, you know, rational judgments of, of things. You're told today that you don't have that and that doesn't exist and the only thing you have is what an animal has, which is sensory experience. Touch it, smell it, feel it, that's it. So we've reduced human beings into these things as opposed to there's more to you than all of that stuff. But 
they just tell you these things and you take it. I mean, atheists, unfortunately, don't recognize it. They just take these things on blind faith value. They just take it on blind faith that there's nothing to this. It's all an illusion. Why do you say that? Because Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins said so. Really? That's, that's your answer? Those, that's the new priesthood of atheism. Let me ask you this, Dr. Muhammad. So when we just think about it like day to day, and I always like giving this example. So when you're choosing right now to talk to me or move your hand around, there are signals being sent from the brain down to these limbs. So for me to go like this, move my hand up and down, I'm sending signals from my brain to my nervous system to give this motion. It's happening extremely fast. Is that accurate? What's happening is that when you don't move, your brain is sending an inhibitory signal to stop the movement. And when you start to move, your brain starts to modulate that inhibitory signal to stop sending it so that you can move. So my brain is always telling me not to move. Yes. Until I tell it to let the gate open and move. Exactly. Okay. So what's telling the brain to do that? That's the problem in consciousness called intentionality. How do you answer intentionality? Which is the essence of consciousness? Yeah. like it's, You have an intention and you carry it out. Your brain normally is sending an inhibitory signal to the rest of your body. And we know that from uh, diseases like Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease. Um, certain areas of your brain, the basal ganglia more, uh, and the striatum, um, where they have dysfunction. Parkinson's disease is substantia nigra, for example, where it starts to start to lose the dopaminergic neurons. And so you start to, or the striatum for, uh, for Huntington's disease, you start to lose the ability to control your movement. And so what ends up happening, Huntington's is called Huntington's Korea for a reason. It's because people start to do dance-like movements uncontrollably. So they start, their brain stops being able to stop their body from moving. So now you're engaged in this process of intentionality. I want to do something. So you tell your brain, all right, stop stopping the signal. SubhanAllah. So it's an Amr. It's an Amr, yeah. You have to stop stopping the signal in a sequence so that you can have an intentional move. I mean, if I take this uh, water bottle and I give it to you, the way that you grab it is a direct like that. Why don't you grab it like this? Right? There's an intention of like, I want to grab it like this because this is the most efficient way of grabbing the water bottle. Um, why when I do one of the tests that we do for uh, coordination is you do this like to have somebody do that or do this uh, back and forth. All of these things, I'm telling my brain, stop sending signal, start sending, stop sending, stop sending the inhibitory signal now, 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 now. Do it to this degree, to that degree, to that degree. It's a very complicated and complex order of events of stopping signals. It's not of initiating signals. So the, so the default is your brain is telling the body it's inhibiting it, which means it's stopping it from doing any activity. Yes. Right? And as soon as you and I decide to talk, move our hand, shake someone's hand, we are actually telling the brain at a very Precise. extremely fast, yeah, what, like one one hundredth of a second or something? I mean, have they done the math on that? I'm what is it? not like, aware of somebody doing – I mean, there is math on it. I'm not aware of the actual studies of the, uh, like the specific numbers. But the, the speed at which this is happening has been measured. As far as I know. Um, but yeah, it's happening. It's not just the speed. It's just the coordination of it all. Right. Like reflexes. And you, lose the you lose, in Huntington's, you lose, and in Parkinson's, you lose the inhibition, the ability of inhibition, as well as, or it becomes more inhibited. In Parkinson's, it's always inhibited. Um, in Huntington's, you lose the inhibition. 
And you also lose the coordination of the signals themselves. It's not just the speed of the signal, it's how is it taking place in a coordinated way so that you have a, a deliberate motion to have uh, an activity take place, an action take place. So who's doing that? Where is that coming from? And that's what I mean by the model of your body as a tool, as opposed to an instrument in the world. And that's why, like, what does that mean? When the Prophet says, your body has a right upon you. What does that mean? Who is you that we're talking about here? That the body will have a right. Because basically you're always choosing to do whatever the body is doing. So the body is responding to your command, your umr. Right? It's your vehicle. It's your instrument. But you have two states of being according to the Islamic tradition. You can either be in a state of taqwa or in a state of ghafla. A state of ghafla is when your animal, motivational parts of you. And that's what I mean by uh, what Al-Farabi talks about mazij. It's like you're a mixture between khalq and amr. Sometimes you can have the khalq take over, where the amr is not really doing much. And so you become driven by your khalq, your created motivations. This is your animal nature. You just want to have sexual relations. You want to eat. You want to drink. You want to do whatever you want to do. Um, you seek pleasure in the world. That's where your dopamine levels rise and so you start to engage in all of these activities that just give you type of motivational pleasure that's now you in a state of ghafla a state of taqwa is you become aware of your khalq and then you start to modulate your inhibitory signals with deliberate effort and that happens and that's what um uh why why is the islamic tradition uh setting a particular age puberty as the age of taklif legal obligation. What it says is that this child or this person has arrived at a particular level of development of now being able to modulate their signals. So they can now do and don't do. They now have an awareness of the ramifications of actions. It doesn't mean that they are responsible in the adult sense, sinna rushd is what we call it, but they're legally responsible in the religious sense that you now understand the significance of these things. And that's why um, they say for children, you have to first get them used to the, I mean, this is an interesting point actually, and I, keep bring, I started bringing this up recently. Uh, there is a theory on embodied cognition in neuroscience, uh, where it basically says that your body is a, is a collection of neurons all over it. It's not, if you go to body works in science world, they show you the nervous system. You're not just a brain. You have nerves running throughout to all of your body. Right. So why do you train a child from a young age? You teach them to, to pray, even when they're not legally obligated. And they tell you so that they can become used to it because it's hard to get somebody who's never done anything once they get old enough to now make them do it. So you have to train them. Is you're actually um, uh, training their nervous system, their embodied cognition, to have a, a, ref a reflex reaction that recognizes when you hear prayer adhan calling, that now your reflex reaction is to go do wudu and to pray. And the motion itself, your body has learned it as a physical thing, as an embodied cognition, that you engage in these movements for prayer. It's like psychosomatic conditioning? Psychosomatic conditioning is what it is. That's embodied cognition. And so you do the same. And so that's what um, uh, the point I'm trying to bring home here is um, uh, with uh, the legally responsible kid. They, they're now getting into an age where they're starting to now recognize 
They should have all of these things already conditioned in their body. If you've done your job right as a parent, now you don't have to command and prohibit it with force. As they get to sin al-rushd, which is now they're having their full wits about themselves, now they can no, they no longer can be punished in the way that you can punish them when they were younger than that. But it's it's a it's a holistic kind of approach and consciousness. It's actually embedded within all of this concept. It's not like Descartes when he said it's in the pineal gland. It's like this thing because he's they're still thinking about it as a material thing. The scholars talk about it as a latifa, hawaiya. It's like you can't even measure it. It's like an air thing. It's a, it's a, a non-material thing that it goes throughout the whole body. It's everywhere. And that's your consciousness. It's your whole being. That's where you get gut feelings from. That's why you have your heart tells you things. You have this. Your, why does your heart pace in certain contexts? I'm not talking about fear and anxiety provoking contexts. Just other reg, regular contexts. All of a sudden you have this gut feeling and then your heart starts to pace and you don't know what's going on. What's happening? That's your consciousness recognizing something about the aura around this place that it's connected to, and it's trying to tell you something before you become mentally aware of it through your mental processes. And and also with the heart, it has a self-generating electrical signal that makes it pulse. We also don't know yeah how it does that either. Correct? Well, it has. You have about fifty thousand neurons. Um, you have the atrial peptide, atrial natriuretic peptide. That gets released in certain situations, and it has communication with the brain, and the brain can respond to it, and it can release hormones as well, like adrenaline, so that it can uh, hormones to release adrenaline from the adrenal glands, and so you have the whole system is integrated. Right, the heart, the heart and the mind, they communicate with each other. They communicate back and forth, and the heart is the first thing that actually develops before the brain de- in the fetus. develops. Yeah, in the fetus, and it starts beating and it starts generating its own thing and doing its own thing before your brain is there. Uh, approximately about uh, six weeks, and this the Prophet said about 40 days is when the ruh is blown into the womb as well. And that's why the scholars differ about um, where is the aql, where is the place of the intellect? Is it the heart or is it the brain? Majority actually says it's in the heart. The reason for that is because uh, the hearts go blind. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, it's the hearts that are in the chest. So Allah points directly and says, it's in your chest. And that's another proof that this thing up here is a receiver. Again, it's an instrument. It's a receiver. It's not that the driver is here. This is just the receiver of it. Yeah, it's, it's, I love it. And, but let me ask you this. So if the, net, the default setting is inhibition, and every time I do something, it's actually an umr. This, this mysterious intentionality or will, right, that's telling whatever I'm doing to do it. Um, and we don't, there's nothing in the brain that actually tells the brain to do what it does. It just does what it does based on me being alive, right? Which is kind of this uh, argument of there must be something else here beyond the mechanical instrumentation. But what about in, let's say, in a chimpanzee or a dolphin? As they, are they also set up in the same way where their default setting is inhibition and they actually command themselves to protect their young or to go grab that banana off a tree? The, so the, the physical process is an inhibition process. That's how the brain functions. It's an inhibition process. The question then becomes what, back again to the point we mentioned earlier, about the qualitative difference between the animal kingdom and human beings. Why is intentionality limited in the animal world 
to physical processes, physiological function, survival in the wild, care of the children. That's it. All sensoria. Yeah. It's all sensory stuff. It doesn't go beyond. We have a civilization. I mean, this, these are things that, uh, like, I don't understand. Yeah, dol dolphins aren't uh, riding beamers in the ocean. Right? No, they're not. <laughs> I, this is what I mean by, like, these guys that reject all of these things and they call themselves rational. It is actually the most irrational thing. Atheism is the most irrational position one can take because there is nothing in the world and we've gone to so many different places. Human beings are the only creature that is going about and doing the things that we're doing to the degree that we, like, we transcended nature. We're subjecting it to our will and whim. We, we have, and we also have the ability to self-destruct destruct because of it. Exactly. We're doing it to, we are doing it to our detriment. And so I find it really fascinating, like the commitment, the ideological blind commitment to rejecting God and rejecting religion, which to some degree, it's, I, I fully acknowledge that. And if you look at the psychology uh, literature on religious belief and why people convert and don't believe or whatever, a lot of it has to do with just uh, emotional factors related to communities, you know, and then we just do post hoc rationalizations. If Islam is true, then how come Muslims are engaged in all of this, this and that, and why are they doing this, this and that? Like, so I get it. But I think if you're a human being who's actually using your reason, you should be able to recognize that what people do does not necessarily reflect the belief system itself. You have to distinguish and separate between the two and investigate the matter for itself. But what do they do? They usually go into um, faulty applications of Islam. They look into historical accounts. They look into some biased kind of misinterpretations of the Quran or whatever that really just justify their already uh, taken beliefs. It's not like they're after any true thing. But when you look into the tradition with an objective eye and what it calls for, I just tweeted something. I said, Islam is not a popularity contest. It's, it's a very difficult religion to follow in the sense that at times you might find yourself to be the only one yeah. who's holding a position, having to stand up against the greater public. But that requires you being able to transcend your groupthink and your allegiances to any sect and to just look at things as they are and follow the Quran and the, and the Sunnah, the example of the Prophet and understand things on their own terms as opposed to, well, look at this community and look at that community and look at this interpretation that I heard from somebody as opposed to you looking into it yourself. I don't know. I, I, I just, I find the more and more I study and look into these things, the more I, I really, I feel bad for atheists, to be honest. And I, I know this can come across as arrogant or conceited or whatever, but seriously. Well, that they, they feel bad for us. They think we're, 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 uh, mentally stagnant and, and um, just causing a lot more trouble and harm. Any atheists who are going to be watching this video, like, man, you are depriving yourself of so much. You're depriving yourself of your own self, of your own intellectual aptitude and, cap and capacity by following these people who are basically telling you you're less than human. I just, why is that message attractive? What, what makes some, like what makes somebody someone to look up to when they tell you, you are not a human being. Because that's what they're really telling you, despite all of the terms that they use, humanism and all of that stuff, but they're telling you, your intellectual capacity, don't use it. And you as a being, you're not a human being, you're an animal. And then people follow that, like, why? Yeah, but Dr. Muhammad, I mean, it's not that simple either. I mean, you, I have spoken to atheists that have really thought it through, 
more than even people who say I believe in Allah, right? And they're not always. To, I mean, they they can come around with a thousand things and be like, "Well, this is why I don't believe in God or Islam." You know, I used to say that I used to say that as well. I've met atheists that really thought it through, but the more you look at it, they haven't thought it through. They engaged in a lot of circular reasoning, and they call that thinking it through. Thinking it through means that you're thinking through into something. Sure. But if you're engaged in a process of circular reasoning, that's a lot of intellectual energy where you're not arriving at any conclusion. And every single time I've sat down with an atheist and had a, and usually you can't do this in a 20 minute kind of conversation. Yeah. It usually takes like on average, whenever I get to sit down with somebody, three, four, five hours and just working through the process. And getting them to see like where they're engaged in circular reasoning and self-refuting ideas or whatever. And only then do they start to leave. When they leave, I'm not saying I'm converting them. But after we finish the conversation, they finally start to see that, wait a minute, I wasn't even thinking about this properly. Right. So engaging, that's like somebody going to the gym and doing a lot of things, but not actually getting into a, a result or a, anything that would benefit their body in any way. In fact, they might be doing wrong form and just injuring themselves. That's not... That's not a praiseworthy thing. So, yeah, no matter who it is, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I believe that this is Hidina Salat al-Mustaqim, lead us to the straight path. And if you want to see things as they truly are, the first thing you have to do is purify your intention. You have to recognize, you have to first have a, an awareness of yourself that I have biases. And my biases are, I like my lifestyle. I like the way that things are going. I recognize that right now in the, the time that we're living in, the people who have the upper hand intellectually happen to be atheists and they happen to be put up on pedestals. And so that tantalizes my emotions a little bit and makes me kind of right. have an inferiority complex if I arrive at a different conclusion. than though. You have to really sit down, first of all, and, and work through all of these biases and then start to think. And only then will you start to see the truth. And like you said, a lot of maybe not a lot, but definitely I would say a, a good portion of atheists have some religious emotional trauma as well. You know, yeah. they've had bad experiences at Roman Catholic school. I mean, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, all those guys have some story when you read about their biographies where something happened, like the loss of a loved one, a loss of a loved one that they couldn't, you know, reconcile with an idea of God. So they basically made, I'm mad at you, God, as their atheistic academic pursuit at times, right? So, I mean, you never know, too, what's going on in, in people's background stories, right? Just like you have people who leave Islam because of, you know, horrible Sunday school experiences. Dawkins, Dawkins himself, he said, um, I remember reading, he was like, he was abused as a child in the school because he was in an Anglican school or something. And then he says, but that really didn't in fact impact my um, <laughs> my approach. Like, seriously, man, come on. <laughs> like, you want to tell me that? Get out of here. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I, I think the world, the, the advent of the media, the, the social media, uh, mass communication, um, this viral culture where you have a lot of, like, it's, I mean, people don't recognize how much of an impact it has when you look at, when you're scrolling through YouTube and you see a video that has, that's trending versus one that's not. A video that has millions of views versus one that has 100 views. Which one are you going to watch? You know, we, uh, the, the, the mass jubilation, when you have a group around you that are all saying one thing, you yourself are going to start to think like, maybe that's true. Yep. Yeah. That's, and, and then just to, it's, it's group mentality because it's an emotional, there's an impact of this. I mean, you know, there's psychology studies looking at 
dopamine release in group uh, settings. Right. Whenever he's engaged in the same thing. Yeah. Persuasion and group think. And, yeah. I mean, even to the extent where you and I could be in a, you know, group and uh, a line this long and a line that long and everyone before you says the small line is bigger, you're actually going to stutter when it comes to your turn. Even though it's clear as day yeah. that that line is three times bigger, but because you're freaking out that you might not see something that everyone else sees or that you're not going to be, uh, you know, a sense of belonging because it is our instinct to need to feel a sense of belonging because it's, I think it's welded to our survival mechanism that we have to feel like, no, I'm, I'm part of this too, or I'm with this, right? This is what everyone's saying. And I think that also may suggest why some Muslims today are taking positions that nobody has ever taken before in Islam, right? Like, like being a secular Muslim or accepting, you know, other things that we know is, is clearly haram, right? Um, or, or, or claiming things that were obligatory are no longer obligatory. Like, you know, praying five times a day or rejecting the sunnah and the hadith. And I mean, once, once somebody told me, I said, you know, look, you can't just reject the sunnah and hadith. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us, you know, and Allah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, and I, you know, went, finished the verse. And, and he was like, well, maybe the Prophet was just saying, follow me, like, follow me, like, down the street, like, follow me to this place. Not follow me like existentially. I'm like, really, man? You, you That's the way you're going to try to justify, like, not that this doesn't matter, you know? I mean, we've, we're getting to that place, man. And these are people that grew up Muslim. I mean, the latest scandal that happened a, a little, a couple of weeks, a week ago, or a couple of weeks ago, was the claim by a certain individual that even Sahih al-Bukhari itself cannot be attributed to Imam al-Bukhari with certainty. Like... Oh, for God's sakes, like it's just it's 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 going down that line. And I really think it's because we've internalized this inferiority complex to such a degree um, that we can't function. We we have to we need to appease somebody. We need to look like we're the rational ones, especially when we talk about Islam and the golden age and how we were rational and how we were scientifically advanced and all of these things. And so we want to maintain that kind of image. And to maintain it, well, who are the rational ones today? The rational ones today are the ones that reject religion. At least right. so we're told. Because that's who gets the platform. These are the ones that get famous. And so this is kind of the way that we're going down. And it's, oh, it's dangerous. It's, um, and so we have conversations about all these things. Again, back to the thing that we mentioned before we got into um, the, the, the podcast itself, was we need to elevate, we need to have people that study these things seriously at a deeper level, we need to have people that go beyond simply studying medicine or engineering and that's it. We need, pe we need Muslims that engage with the tradition actively. I mean, there is a, a, I think one of the problems is that we have separated between Islamic studies and so-called secular studies. And the call that uh, was put before by some scholars that say that, um, and some speakers where let's bring all the scholars into one room and all of the secular, you know, educated people into one room, and then they can share the knowledge and then we can come up with new solutions. I don't think that's actually a, a good idea. I think the better idea is that you need individuals take on the task, which is a heavy burden, but it is doable, of I'm going to go study psychology, while at the same time I'm going to go and study the Islamic tradition, Islamic philosophy, I'm going to study the Aqidah, I'm going to study the Quran, I'm going to memorize the Quran, I'm going to like take on the task of actually being serious students of knowledge who combine these things together. Yeah, polymaths. 
like a polymath, like Ibn Khaldun and Ibn Haytham. That's we've been lied to now. You can't do that. You have to you have to specialize. No, you need to bring all of these things together because you need an individual who has know-how and knowledge and has a leg in each side so that they can synthesize this stuff and bring you um, kind of a synthesis that is Islamically based that also takes into account valid facts that we can verify and give you kind of a, a, a properly you know, elevated discourse. But this business of... I mean, you, I'm sure you deal with this a lot. People that tell you that, oh, you don't need psychology, just read the Quran. Exactly. <laughs> Heard that. And, and I always say, I mean, look, the most beautiful and profound ulama are the ones that mastered all these different subjects because it only made their insights and integration of ilm and of the ayat of Allah that much more profound and solid, you know? Yeah. And now we, and, but that's the thing is now a lot of the imams we have in our local masajid, right, are people that only specialize in aqidah and fiqh from, you know, 11th century Turkey, and they're in, you know, Michigan or Chicago or wherever they are, and they're, you know, and those are the people we're also going to and going, oh, I have trauma, or I'm having an issue here, or, you know, this and that, and and so it's also happening the other way around, where our Islamic so-called leaders are, are too specialized, or sometimes not specialized enough, because they don't know the first thing about human science or sociology or psychology, yet they're guiding masses of people. Yes. Subhanallah. Yes. And, you know, telling a girl if she got raped in a college campus that was her fault because she didn't wear the hijab. Yani, this kind of nonsense. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, we have a lot of work to do. I think our generation, especially, uh, we have to lay down the groundwork for the next generation. I think a lot of us, especially those of us in academia and who are studying seriously and things like that, we have we all have to come to peace with, uh, with uh, we all have to come to terms with the fact and peacefully that we are just going to lay the foundation, but we are not going to see the result in our lifetime. Right, we're the transitional relationship uh, generation. Yes, and so we have to set the ground. We have to set the groundwork for everybody that's going to come next afterwards. To build upon um, what's what uh, upon what we build, but um, we're not. I mean, I've made peace with that. You know, I'm, I, whatever I put out there, if it's good, then it's from Allah, and if it's bad, then it's from me. But I hope whatever is good that's out there, I've already made peace peace with the fact that I'm not going to see the tangible results at a mass scale. I might see it in individuals. And alhamdulillah, I do meet some people that you know they tell me they've been inspired, they're pursuing things, and and I do see tangible changes in that sense. I, I see students who are now seriously pursuing other fields while maintaining a connection with the tradition and studying the tradition. So now I know that this is taking work at that place. But I think it's it might be even down to my great-grandchildren before we see kind of a renaissance that is tangible where Muslims, again, um, are the mantle holding civilization. Um, I look at it in the same way that... Um, that Turkish series that took uh, everybody by storm. Totally. Um, in one, in one, in many scenes, he does say that our task is to build, to plant the seeds. It's for our children and grandchildren to come and build. And it's amazing, you know. Anybody that sees him, he was living in tents, nomads, running around horses. I mean, but he's doing all of this work, knowing that I'm not going to see the the fruits of it. This is for my children. This is for my grandchildren. And sure enough. Within a generation, you have the Ottoman Empire kind of rise up and, and take over everything. And so the same thing, Muslims, same thing. The Prophet ﷺ, during his time, he didn't see Muslims go into Persia and take over and all of these things, but he set forth the groundwork. 
And Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu put the final slabs on it and just kind of confirmed with Hurub al-Ridda and whatnot. He just confirmed that this is going to stay now steady. And then Umar al-Khattab's time radiallahu anhu is when we really saw this kind of just Fath. mass expansion. Yeah. So that's kind of what, that's the, I think the, the, the frame of mind we all have to get into is we have to look at these topics, consciousness, free will, all of these things that we talk about, really deconstructed to its essence because the the bottom line is this is not a, an issue of religion versus science this is iman versus kufr this is belief versus disbelief deconstruct it properly engage with it in a rational way take nuances recognize that wisdom is the lost property of the believer so don't just have a reflexive rejection to everything that you hear find out where the truth lies take the truth and throw the rest out and lay the groundwork for Muslims, for the future generation, that when they come, hopefully they will remember remember us and pray for us. Mm-hmm. That if it wasn't for the Kareems and the Muhammads and all of these people that and Ali's and whoever that you know came before us and set the groundwork, it's their works that we now are using to take over. I mean, even the Enlightenment period. I mean, all these people were quite audacious. I look at a political example. We all take for for uh, for granted that the nation state, right? Everybody takes that for granted. You grew up in this. You were born in this. The world is constructed in a nation state model. But there was a period of time when there was a group of audacious individuals in Europe, in Western Europe, who said, "We don't like empires." Right. And they started to put down works that laid the ground for the next generation to have their revolutions, which then laid the ground for establishing the nation state. So that's kind of the way that we have to think about these things. A lot of Muslims today, they want to get to the end right away. They want to see a resurrection of a caliphate or whatever it is that they have an idea about. And they want to like, between a night and a day, all of a sudden, today we're like this, tomorrow we're like that. No, no, no. This is a, a slow project to some degree. Lay the groundwork first. Right. You don't want a microwavable product. Exactly. Exactly. Dr. Muhammad, thank you so much for your wonderful insights and, and feedback. And I'm really glad to have you on the show again. I'll see you in 12 months, inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I, my apologies. We, we've been meaning to do this for a long time. I know you're busy, man. I, I, love, I love having these conversations with you, though. Don't forget to check out Dr. Muhammad Ghilan's podcast. He also has it on iTunes. Be sure to leave him a review. He also has patreon.com slash Dr. Muhammad Ghilan. Yeah. For me, is the AndalusOnline.org. Um, Andalus Book Club is where they can have more kind of a monthly live interaction. We talk about a different book every month, and we have a discussion about that. So that's one thing for them to check out. Thanks again for coming on, CD, And inshallah, let's stay conscious of our purpose. I mean, Ya Rabbil Adam.